So guys, welcome to uh, another episode of AI for Dummies. I am here, as I was just telling Nathan and Will, in a farm in Ibiza. Nathan's reaction was, I didn't realize there were farms in Ibiza, to which I explained, you got the like touristy going out scene, which Will, you're, you're going to. And then there's very much like this bohemian, um, there's this bohemian kind of like yoga meditation kind of scene. So I'm in that. That was a call out, dude. I'm going to the, I'm going to the touristy Ibiza. You're at the non-touristy Ibiza. I get it. Yeah. But, um, but anyways, I'll get, I'll get more into that. So if you hear, there are like, there are, um, roosters and peacocks and like different farm animals here. Um, so if you hear anything that it is what it is, that's, that's just, it is what it is. We'll, we'll spice it up a bit. Um, but really excited to have Nathan Lebens. Am I pronouncing that uh, Lebens. correctly? <clears throat> Excuse me. Lebens, I say. Yep. Apologies. Uh, Nathan Lebens, really excited to have you here. The context is Will and I both use Athena, which is an amazing company, um, and they provide virtual EAs as well as kind of we, we use them for customer service ops, all kinds of things who are phenomenal, mostly in the Philippines. And Nathan just joined as an AI advisor to that company, but he's also involved with a bunch of other projects uh, related to AI. So I'll let him kind of do the quick intro, but he also has a podcast, which I'll let him kind of describe. He's had some amazing guests, Elad Gill, Sarah Guo, Mohamed uh, Felfel, who we just talked about, Play HD, who I, I believe is a founder. And so I've learned a lot just recently listening to these things, but uh, but I'll, I'll pass over to Nathan maybe to do kind of a quick intro here. Cool. Well, thanks, guys. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, so yeah, I'm Nathan Lebens. Um, I'm the founder and I was the CEO at uh, my company called Waymark for a number of years. And now I am the AI product R&D lead there. Um, so that kind of remains you know, the first thing that I lead with in the bio. Uh, we have a real easy to use generative AI powered video creation product for mostly small businesses, although we do partner with a lot of big businesses that also serve the small businesses. So think like cable companies, ad platforms, you know, broadcast TV networks, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's a ton of fun. I, as you mentioned, am also advising at Athena, a very different context. You know, at, at Waymark, we're building an application. At Athena, we're doing education, we're doing task automation, uh, but we're not building like a single technology product. So kind of two sides of AI development and implementation today. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, also, I'm the host of the Cognitive Revolution podcast, which we you know started earlier this year, but I'm going really hard on because I just uh, have so many people that I want to talk to. And, you know, I keep going back and forth where I'm like, man, I'm spending a lot of time on this. But then I'm also like, but there's so many more people I want to talk to. So yeah. I kind of just keep scheduling, uh, you know, more and more interviews and have learned a lot from that process as well. Amazing. Let's do it. Let's do a quick. That's a good jumping off point for a quick check in because you're going on all these podcasts. How's everyone doing? Are we thriving? Are we surviving? What's our fear level of AI at the moment? <laughs> I you go first, first. Suman. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nathan, Nathan, you go first. You go first. No, Nathan, you're the guest. You go first. I, you know, one of my big mantras is it's kind of always both, you know, and I, I also say everything everywhere all at once is kind of the, the right thing to expect for the next couple of years. So I think we are thriving. All the AI companies that I know are doing pretty well, if not extremely well. The market is just growing, you know, inbound interest is up. The product is working, you know, for, for whatever the product is certainly true at Waymark. You know, it's just way cooler than it used to be. You know, it, I have these mantras that's like, AI beats UI and done for you by AI beats do it yourself. 
And, you know, crossing that threshold has been just a huge difference maker for the quality of the experience that we're able to deliver. And, you know, literally just like word of mouth traffic now comes in because it is genuinely really cool in a way that it, you know, it wasn't always. So I do think there's, you know, tons of great stuff at the same time. Um, you know, I'm very ambivalent in the sense that I love the technology, I love working with it, but I do have, you know, what in my mind is a healthy fear of it as well. And I'd put myself kind of in the, in the, you know, what is it's, this is like a shocking mainstream, but I do think that the mainstream of both people in AI and the general public now pretty clearly takes seriously the possibility that there could be a genuine AI disaster. Um, I don't get too bogged down or try not to get yeah. too bogged down in like what exactly are the chances of that. But when you see results that are like, well, half of the AI researchers we polled said it was a 10% or greater chance, you know, of existential catastrophe. Then I don't really care if it's 10 or 50 or 90. Like that all sounds quite high and scary. Um, and, you know, yeah, really, 1% sounds high and scary. Yeah, totally. I, I kind of originally got into, and this is a long backstory, but I, I originally got into AI on essentially that argument reading, you know, Eliezer's hmm. content back in 2006, seven, eight timeframe. And even then, you know, he was kind of sounding the alarm that like, this is the path we're on and it's going to be really dangerous. And I wasn't, you know, fully sold that like he was right about everything, but I was convinced that, you know, I can't really dismiss this certainly beyond like a 1% type scenario. And so it felt like, well, geez, you know, nobody's really paying attention to this even if it is, you know, just 1% or even a 10th of a, of a percent, you know, we don't want to go the way of the dinosaurs because we ignored, you know, I mean, now people allude to don't look up all the time. I used to say that, you know, we have people that kind of scan the skies for asteroids. Why wouldn't we put at least some resources into thinking about this AI thing? But man, it, you know, back then it felt so speculative. It was like maybe one day and we'll want to be prepared. And, you know, obviously it's gotten a lot more real in the intervening years. So, so, Will, your question, uh, sorry, thriving or surviving? I would yeah, I threw us way down, way down <laughs> a path there. My bad. Let's get, no, let's no, get back it's, to it's it. No, no, it's good, you though. I'm going to answer quickly. You're going to go, <laughs> and then we'll tee up the rest of the convo. So, um, Sounds good. I would I would say both. So I'm in at this retreat, and I just did this, like, breathwork session. And it was really interesting, actually, just, like, not to get philosophical. I mean, I, I will get philosophical in that – I was thinking about, I mean, we're in this farm and it's in the middle of nowhere and um, it's very kind of um, calm and peaceful and intentional, all those words, right? And we were just thinking about breath and I was like, well, I was thinking about the question, like what separates humans from um, kind of AI or machines or technology? And it was this very human moment around kind of just like breathing, right? And focusing on that. Um, and so I was just thinking about the fact that like, this what humanizes us is actually our bodies right and like i was just having this whole existential conversation in my head about like hey even if ai will make like is more productive there are elements of humanity that that it doesn't have which which i think gave me some positivity um i'll just pause with that one and i'll give it to <laughs> to will i love that uh and i I'll, I'll go and then this i actually have a question for nathan based off of that but i i'm thriving today uh last night my thing with generative AI is why I'm scared of it. In the short term, it's making me way more productive and happier. So last night I was able to fix a bug and push some code because I couldn't figure it out and Stack Overflow couldn't give me the answer. Put it in the chat GPT. It identified something I couldn't find online, fixed a bug for me, got me unblocked, went to bed, woke up, went to Barry's this morning, got my coffee, 
I'm, I'm like hyped up on energy. Like it's a great day. A lot of energy in New York today. I love your breath uh, comments, Suman, because I have often wondered like what is, when will I know that we've built AGI and a conscious system? And the only thing I can think of to really tell is if a computer enjoys listening to a story because that feels uniquely human as well. There's, there's something different about creating a story and telling a story, which ChatGBT can already do, or these language models, but could it listen to a story and be on the edge of its seat and wanna hear what happens next the way us humans do? I don't know how we measure that, but that would be the mark of AGI for me. Nathan, I wonder, what do you think? When, when do you see something and think that's AGI? Well, there's a lot of different definitions of that, certainly. Um, and I think it is a point of major confusion right now. People are kind of often talking past each other because they're kind of, you know, thinking of that, conceiving of it quite differently in many cases. I do think it's yeah. really interesting that, you know, for the longest time, um, this is not an original observation um, by me, but for the longest time, at least in like the Western tradition, the idea was kind of, we're special and different from the animals because we have this intellectual ability that they don't have. And that's why we get to rule the world and they don't. And we get to do whatever we want with them, you know, has kind of been, obviously that's been challenged, but it's, you know, was kind of the default for a long time. And now with these AI systems arising, it's kind of flipped and it's like, well, what separates us from the AIs? Well, it's all this animal stuff that we have, you know, we breathe, like the animals and we <laughs> yeah, feel, yeah. you know, so exactly kind of in yeah. the yeah. overlap of this Venn diagram where there's like cognitively advanced systems that we're building out, you know, increasingly like potential peers or even rivals to us. And then we've got all these yeah. kind of, you know, biological, you know, biologically similar, you know, shared ancestor type uh, other creatures. I really don't know, you know, in terms of like, if you think of AGI as a consciousness uh, in a conscious, you know, sort of. That's if that's the litmus test for you, I am not saying that that's what you're saying, but you know, somebody might say, well, it's not AGI until it's conscious. I think it's tough. I, I'm not sure that it's necessary or sufficient, honestly. Um, I can definitely imagine or, you know, it seems co coherent to me to believe that there could be an AGI system as OpenAI kind of defines it, which is like something that can outperform humans at economically valuable work across, you know, almost all, if not all economic niches i don't think that sort of thing has to be conscious you know it doesn't necessarily have to feel like anything to be that thing and my best guess you know we're starting to see like gpt4 already can outperform the average person at most tasks it still falls short of an expert on most tasks but it is like above well above average right it's getting 90th you know top 10 percent in the bar exam so it's, it can clearly outperform the average person on most tasks. My guess is it's not conscious and it doesn't feel like anything to be GPT-4. But I also am a little bit unclear why people are so confident in that in general. You know, I don't know why it feels like anything to be me. I don't know, like, as a kid, I was told that animals don't feel anything. And I took that at face value. And that now seems kind of crazy to me. Even like, you know, I, I remember... A, a friend of the family who owned a dog and said, you know, they don't, they're not conscious. They just, you know, it's all instinct. And it's like, that seems very wrong in retrospect. How far down that, you know, right. <laughs> yeah, it seems crazy, right? How far down that animal scale though, would you go before maybe you're like, well, at the level of like, 
you know, some nematode, you know, <laughs> whatever, like you certainly get to like a bacteria, not too many people seem to think a bacteria, you know, individual bacteria would be conscious, but that line, you know, it's probably some sort of continuum that we don't really understand. And could GPT-4 exist on some, you know, some place on that spectrum? Like I have no basis to be extremely, just like I'm like, I can't be that confident that it's not going to take over the world and kill us all. I'm also not that confident that it's not <laughs> conscious. Like I bet against it, but given that we can't even possibly resolve the bet, you know, how confident can I really be? Right. Yes. Uh, the humanity question is, is interesting. So, so Nathan, we have, I want to tackle a few quite like sections of stuff with you for the first, we've actually covered a bit, which is like your time at Waymark. Um, but I would love to hear specifically, I would say you're like down, down the rabbit hole, uh, is not to use kind of a web three or wherever that came from down the rabbit hole, um, with regards to AI. And you went from leaving or kind of leaving as the CEO and founder of Waymark to not being that intentionally and then spending your time in different ways and now becoming what you call an AI scout. Like why? What, what, first of all, what does all that stuff mean? And then why philosophically have you made those decisions? Yeah, probably a couple different key moments in time. You know, the, when we got, or at least when I got real conviction around AI in a Waymark context was summer and really Labor Day of, um, 2021, which is oh, there's know, a specific date. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that it, was the day. <laughs> I took kind of, you know, took the day off, kind of a little bit of a retreat day, you know, type of thing for myself. A little, uh, you know, just meditation, quiet time, uh, getting some sun, and I came up with the mantra AI or die for Waymark, and I was just like, you know, this stuff is. And it wasn't working for us yet, to be clear. GPT-3 was out, yeah. but we had not successfully applied it. And we tried a bunch of prompt engineering stuff, and we couldn't quite get it to work for us yet at that time. But it just became clear that, like, the combination of, you know, the sort of blank slate problem that we talked about earlier, where customers were just kind of like, I don't know, you've got all these tools, but I don't really have anything to say. You know, that was, like, staring us in the face pretty hard. There's a lot of, you know, as you you know, can easily imagine, right? There's a lot of competition in the space for content creation software. And I was just kind of yeah. like, there's no way for us to be successful without mastering this new, you know, technology wave. Like we have to catch it as early as possible. And shortly, we were already working on it. So shortly thereafter, probably two weeks later was when we got our first open AI powered, fine tuned GPT three to work on the most basic level, you know, we, and we stubbed our toe on everything you can imagine along the way. By the way, it was a lot harder then than it is now. So like a lot of the elbow grease and, you know, just, just grinding through kind of, you know, data cleaning type work is much, much easier now than it was then. But on, I think you know, like roughly September 15th of 2021, we got our first fine tuned model to at least perform the task structurally consistently meaning like we could give it a script format and it could return the proper format and we'd look at that copy and be like man that's still kind of shit copy but at least you know it will it'll work within our system now and from there i was kind of like all right i'm going all in on this so i i essentially you know was still nominally ceo <laughs> but i kind of said guys we're not doing anything else until we figure this out 
um, even to our board. I was like, I'm not having board meetings right now. We're all in on this. We're going to come back up. <laughs> He's when like, we... guys, have you heard about AI? No board meetings. <laughs> yeah. So I created an AI 101 for Waymark. And I invited the board members to that. And I was like, you want to come, you know, this is what we're doing. So if you want to come and do this, we can do it. Otherwise, you know, nothing really matters. We're, you know, it's AI or die. We're going to die if we don't, because other people are going to do it, right? So we either have to be on it and ahead of it, or, you know, somebody else is going to eat our lunch. And I basically did that for six months. And six months turns out to be about as long as you can kind of neglect everything else in the role of a, you know, startup CEO. Um, before people are like, yeah, I know you're really into this AI thing, but like, we do have to do the comp review <laughs> or like, it's just not going to work. <laughs> so at that point I was kind of like very fortunate, honestly, I have a, you know, longtime friend and teammate, um, Alex Persky Stern is his name. He's now the CEO. He has been with the company a long time. He had been the COO. He had been our product lead. So, and you know, he's in many ways better at the job than I am anyway. So, uh, it was a, it was greatly eased by the fact that I didn't have to look too far for, you know, who I would want to take over. And I didn't feel like I was, you know, abandoning the, you know, the effort or the team, uh, because I knew that he would be successful in the role. So that was a huge, you know, advantage that made it uh, more possible. But yeah, I kind of basically just decided, like, I didn't really want to go back. The, the technology is so compelling and I feel like I had a knack for it. We were making good progress. Um, and I was kind of like, I'd rather do that. You know, I don't, I'd rather build the thing than try to go sell the thing right now. So if I can make that role change, let's do it. Uh, I did that. And then probably the next big moment was GPT-4. You know, I, for all of 2022 up through, like the first three quarters of 2022, I was just no meetings, deep work every day, curiosity led. How am I going to, find you know the right models and put them together and make this thing awesome and that's really all I did but uh, along the way I had kind of you know we were an early open AI customer right you go back to 2021 they didn't have that many customers um, you know certainly the world now is beating a path to their door and like they've got way bigger you know uh, accounts than us but at the time they didn't have that many and we kind of established ourselves as a good source of feedback for them we bought into a little consulting program that they had that they no longer even offer. Um, now it's like, you want to buy like, you know, dedicated capacity at scale and like an enterprise account, then we'll like give you an account manager. Then we weren't even spending much, but you know, for a couple thousand bucks a month, they gave us an account manager, some, you know, advising along the way. We established ourselves as a good source of just product feedback. And that then got us on a list for customer preview access to what we now know is GPT-4. And that was an, another kind of clear moment for me where I was like, I knew this stuff was getting better. I already thought it was going to be transformative. I'd been doing more and more task automation with it. Even in our R&D stack at Waymark, it had already gotten to the point where I was preferring to use AI for various tasks rather than doing it, you know, kind of the traditional way. Things like video annotation, you know, for example, where we need to create some data set to do a fine-tuned model for whatever you could go hire somebody on upwork to do that or you could grind it out yourself by the summer of 2022 we were already in a place where it was like it's better to use an ai system to do this because you know it does take some setup and legwork but once you have it then you can go back to it anytime you know your upwork contractor is not necessarily going to be there next time you know the reliability is can be inconsistent with our fine-tuned models the reliability wasn't perfect but it was at least consistent and 
you know, we, we got ourselves into a pretty good like bootstrapping thing where we do 20 examples manually for whatever task, fine tune a model, you know, that would usually get us like 80% of the way there, you know, then we'd like find the failure cases, fix those, you know, big, build a bigger data set, fine tune again, do that like two or three iterations, we could usually get uh, ourselves to where we could automate whatever task reasonably well. So I was already like, you know, and this is all pre GPT-4, right? This is like, text davinci 002 you know if you know you know the model names like that was the state of the art at the time um and i was like it's a, it's definitely like a transformative technology but then when gpt4 preview access came that was like a you know i'll never forget where i was kind of moment because it was just so qualitatively different right and the the bottom yeah. 10% you know bar exam to top 10% that was immediately obvious you know just the, the depth of conversation that you could have with this thing the, the types of questions that it could answer and at that point i was kind of like wow this is a this is not just transformative but it's going to be like very transformative very quickly and you know this privileged access that i have like i could sort of you know use it some and keep doing the waymark stuff but what i decided to do and fortunately i had also built up a little bit of r d inventory so I could kind of say, you know, I can take a little time away from this and there's still enough projects for, you know, the engineering team to implement for a while at least. I'm just going to go all in on using this window to try to understand this thing as well as possible. Uh, you know, and basically just made it my business to be like, at least outside of open AI, you know, I tried to be kind Epic. of <laughs> the most knowledgeable person about every aspect of what the system could do. And boy, that was, <laughs> that was a fascinating time. Um, and a little unnerving, honestly, I think you know, it, it was because we were just yeah. in kind of an isolated, you know, little testing pocket of the world, um, you know, not really able to talk to people about it as you, you know, it is, as you'd expect, they had, uh, you know, rules around that sort of thing. So yeah, it was a, it was a transformative moment. And from there I was just kind of like, all right, I think the most valuable thing I can do is just try to help others understand what is happening. And I've kind of gradually, you know, framed that up into the AI scout, uh, you know, label that I use these days. But um, certainly that was a breaking point, you know, just stayed up all night, <laughs> like just running all these. Yeah, it wasn't even prime. It's like, you got beyond it was beyond prompting, you know, it's like now I'm just having yeah. conversations, and they're really pretty compelling. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was clear wow. to me immediately that it was going to be a big deal. You were, I mean, just being so dialed on OpenAI early and playing with some, watching it evolve. I'm curious if you had to guess, uh, like as revenue usually follows a power law, right? And like your biggest customer is an outsized share of revenue and on down. If you were at OpenAI looking at the revenue stack, what use case do you think is that Pareto principle, like lion's share of the revenue use case that they see today? I think it's changing very quickly. They've said that, you know, essentially the Waymark style use case of like marketing copy was a large share of their revenue for a good chunk of time anyway. And, you know, the good reason for that being like, you know, there's a ton of that on the internet. You know, it's kind of, it was relatively easy to prompt into, relatively low stakes, um, you know, easy to just kind of rifle through stuff. So I think that has been the majority of revenue for most of their revenue generating history. 
I don't really know right now exactly how that has changed, but I do think it is changing pretty dramatically, both because... Like marketing copy and stuff like that, like generate generate a blog post and like Jasper. Yes, Jasper what, what has been a huge customer. I think it's changing on both sides, though, yeah. because Jasper is in a competitive market, obviously, and has spent a lot yeah. with OpenAI over time. And they are now fine-tuning their own models. And so they're beginning to take some of their mm. OpenAI cost out. And Waymark isn't that big. So, you know, we don't have... And, and we also have a very... When you really get into these things, one interesting question is, like, how many of your generations are actually useful for people? The lower the rate of success, you know, the more kind of overhead in terms of the generation or inference or OpenAI bill that you have... We actually have a very high success rate. So something like one in three, maybe, of the videos that people generate, they ultimately like enough to edit and download. And so we're not seeing, like, insane, you know, iteration or insane, like, generation volume per, like, monetizable output, you know, within our product. Different writing products could be very different there. I don't know anything about Jasper's metrics, but, you know, you can imagine, like, going to some of these open-ended writing tools and being like, it might be one in... 50, you know, as opposed to the way mark one in three, that's actually useful. And so they may have a lot more kind of incentive to try to take open AI cost out. They now can do that with these open source alternatives if they want to. Jasper is on the Mosaic ML homepage as a featured customer. I'm sure they continue to use open AI as well. But, you know, for many things, we are now at the point for, for like marketing copy type use cases. We are at the point where open source models fine tuned can get you there. And then the next generation of revenue for OpenAI, I think is going to be around the leading edge capability. I mean, they have the ChatGPT API, but at $2 per million tokens, you know, <laughs> that's that's priced competitively. Uh, whereas GPT-4, you know, is, is like 20 times more expensive at the retail level. But then they're also starting to sell this like dedicated capacity and, you know, robust fine tuning. And for that kind of stuff, you know, they're approaching enterprises and saying, don't even think about this in terms of tokens. Think about it in terms of capability that you don't have that you could have, right? And if you if you buy into this, and I, I don't know their pricing, there has been a leak about it, and I've kind of analyzed that, but I don't know if it's, you know, I'm sure it's continuing to evolve. But it's like a pretty obvious sale, I think, to, to many large enterprises at yeah. this point to be like, yeah. if you buy in at a million dollars, you're going to have this ability to fine tune GPT-4. You can't get it anywhere else. So do you want to have that or not have it? It, it starts at a million bucks. And I think, you know, for many, you know, CEOs or CTOs or CIOs or whatever today, it's kind of like, can I really afford not to buy that? Yeah. Um, and then it one becomes a competitive and you're right. like, oh, someone else in your field is doing that. Then you're like, well, shit. You can't I be can't, left behind. I, it's going to be really interesting from a B2B enterprise side of things. So, yeah. Those conversations, internal conversations, must be fascinating on all ends, the technology and the business side of it, to be honest. Um, on the on the business business side kind of task automation, I want to – I think – so you're, you're, you're working with um, Athena. I'd be curious to hear a little bit about – kind of what you're doing with them because i we use athena folks we love athena shameless uh plug uh and and will does as well and if you could just describe kind of what athena does a bit and then also the, the virtual eas um 
And then how are you help? How are you helping them like use AI to to become more productive? And why? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of threads to pull there. So Athena, as you mentioned, is you know an executive assistant company. They recruit in the Philippines and then match one to one executive assistants with clients, mostly in the United States, but could be anywhere in the world. Um, they do take a distinctive approach. They, they actually call the EAs uh, XPs, which stands for executive partner. And one of the core values of the company is always think long-term. So they really try to set up these kind of long-term uh, one-to-one, like, you know, executive and, and XP partnerships that will hopefully, you know, they aim for like 10-year uh, partnerships. So they, that is important for, you know, for multiple reasons. It's, it's a lot of what drives the company, but it's also kind of cashes out to, there's not really a standard uh, client. There's not really a standard relationship. Uh, you know, the needs are all very idiosyncratic. The tools that people use, even for things like communication, you know, vary widely. Um, yep. And it's all about like, training the XPs and then helping them kind of support the client in whatever way. And, you know, no way is too idiosyncratic. If you're going to be doing this for 10 years, you know, you're going to kind of tailor your approach to that client. So that's all context. I mean, AI, obviously, as you could imagine, a lot of use cases there. Um, at a general kind of high level, the CEO is like, we're not an AI company, but we want to be the best at using AI. And so my you know, role as advisor is to try to help facilitate that, starting really just with education. And you know, so again, just like I did the Waymark AI 101, we're now doing Athena AI 101. Um, it's of course different because you know, <laughs> the tools have changed, right? They're much more advanced. Uh, it's in many ways like a lot easier to introduce AI to people now because it often just works out of the box you know, in a way that even a few months ago, it really didn't. Um, so we're putting together these kind of, you know, courses, core techniques, like what is this stuff? How do you access it? You know, what is prompt engineering? Like, what are the things about that that you actually need to know? Um, you know, breaking that down into just kind of bite-sized, hopefully consumable, easy to understand lessons. I'm doing, um, live AI office hours, uh, twice a week yeah. right now where people just, you know, come in on a zoom wow. and it's like 200 plus, uh, EAs that are just, you know, trying to upskill on AI and, you know, that uh, we bring some, you know, packaged kind of content. They're joining, them, like but... people, people, people join these officers. It's like being well-received. Yeah. I think people know that it's going to be a big part of how they work. I, I'm not, you know, I don't think I would be the one that people would, uh, you know, send their pushback to necessarily. Um, but I don't, I don't think there's much of that. You know, I think it's really, um, there's probably a little bit of intimidation factor that we have to get over, but, you know, I, and, and maybe, um, you know, maybe some fear. I mean, I'm, I certainly have my, you know, streak of fear with AI, so I'm sure that exists as well. But in practice, you know, most of the time I kind of get the like mind blown emoji <laughs> reaction. That's like the most, yeah. you know, if you put it in emoji form, it would be the mind blown emoji <laughs> would be the, the biggest, uh, you know, what's one of the biggest mind blow emoji. If you put out an example or show in an office hour, what's gotten the biggest, like yeah. what literal example have you shown that's gotten the biggest reaction? We start with pretty basic techniques and even those, you know, will blow people's minds pretty regularly. So 
you know, we just start off and our, our general strategy is we're going to start with GPT-4 because it's the easiest to get to work. So, you know, we want to take the easy path to maximum quality and value. And then if, you know, and I was going to give this caveat, if, you know, we're running up our bill, first of all, we'll, we'll be saving a lot compared to what we would have been spending, you know, to power those tasks by a human. So let's keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. But if we are seeing like a, a bill, you know, that's getting uncomfortable, then we can revisit and maybe look at a cheaper model or, you know, there's a lot of things we could try to do. But let's first drive toward value. So we always start with GPT-4. We really just start with basic instructions. Like, did you even know that you can just tell an AI what to do? And, you know, for the vast majority of things you might ask it to do, it will understand you, you know, and it will do it. And you'll feel like it actually got what you were trying to get at and like addressed your need in a reasonable way. That's a mind blown, mm. you know, for a lot of people right off the bat, right? And many people I think have at least used ChatGPT, so they have some knowledge of that, but you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that like that is incredible and didn't, you know, up until recently didn't really exist. There's so many possibilities when I, I, I always forget, like we had a call with Suman's team and one of, uh, his Athena, uh, EAs actually brought up that she's using it for her grocery list, which I thought was such a cool use case of, I'm going to throw everything in a list and you're going to organize it by section for me. Oh, and that was the, yeah, that was such was a little, actually... so useful. I would have never thought to do that, but of course, you know, GPT could crush that use case of, yeah, we're going to sort the fruit together and the meat together and everything. Just basic formatting is so helpful. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it the I shopping mean, experience way shorter. <laughs> you just go to the, yeah. as opposed to going. That's going cool. from unstructured yeah. to structured data is a huge use case. You know, it's, again, it's like easy to forget that this didn't exist up until quite recently. But, you know, you can now take in arbitrary stuff and, like, you know, summarize it down to 10 key points or even get more, you know, explicit than that. I need key facts, you know, even put them into a JSON data format, you know, so that I can pipe it into whatever other system. Um, yeah, I mean, there's you combine you, these few you, kind of core tasks and you can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is so cool. Do you see as you're teaching... Um, people about how to use these, do you find that the adoption curve is faster because it's easier to ask questions and learn? Like how has it changed the learning process in this case of teaching people about it versus if you were trying to train them on machine learning five years ago? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's certainly dramatically easier to, you know, get comfortable asking ChatGPT some questions than, it is to, you know, understand kind of fundamentals of machine learning. So we're not really teaching fundamentals. You know, I, I try to cover basic things that at least like help you interpret what you're seeing, you know, so we do get into the, the level of like, okay, a language model, it predicts one token at a time. You know, that's why you're seeing like the, the text kind of stream onto the page because what it's doing is it is predicting just the next token and you know break down what is a token it's basically a word whatever and then it's doing that iteratively so that it's using what it predicted the first time to inform what it's going to predict the second time and that's you know a big part of how it can be coherent as it's making these one by one predictions so i get into kind of that level of like mechanically how does it work we do not get into like transformer architecture um because 
you know, that's not super practical. And, you know, we're really trying to help people, you know, be more efficient and not send them, you know, on a, a wild goose <laughs> chase. <laughs> they don't have to come yeah. down the rabbit hole with me necessarily. Um, yeah, they just need yeah. to learn some core we skills. Yeah. Someone to come back and say, hey, we, we're following Nathan's path. We're all AI scouts now. We're no longer. <laughs> I, you know, there's, yeah, there no, are a few I mean, that, are, that are true all-stars. And it's inspiring. And, you know, I, I honestly yeah. welcome that and kind of need it. I, I always try to tell people, like, one of my goals, which I'm constantly failing to meet, is to have no major blind spots in the AI space. And, you know, but it's just not really feasible anymore or realistic to expect, you know, that anybody could have no major blind spots. So um, I, by all means, try to encourage those that are, like, the most enthusiastic to kind of, you know, scout uh, yeah. alongside me. As you should. It's it's a it's a great thing, globalization and democratizing access to knowledge and tools. Uh, I know we're coming up on time here, so I, I got one last question. If you're if you uh, if you got a, a time to, to yeah, I'm it. I'm flexible. So if if you guys want to run a little long, it's cool with me as well. Cool. So we were talking about are you surviving or thriving? And I was actually having this conversation earlier today with someone, which are basically I'm like, well, what are humanity's like biggest problems, and how might AI uh, actually help them. Some of the problems I was thinking of were climate change and, you know, environmental destruction, um, things around like access to healthcare, right. And not people not having access to, to appropriate healthcare, um, diseases. So then maybe like those with those problems, maybe frame like, okay, I just talked about, you know, climate and energy, essentially like medicine and biotech, big problems, right? How, how would AI help those other than just like marketing copy? Yeah, that's really the big headline, I think, of the last few months with the release of GPT-4 and, you know, Google now with Palm 2 is kind of not quite as polished, but at a similar level of raw capability, I think. So take medicine first, right? I mean, just a couple of recent episodes of my podcast, I interviewed the author of The AI Revolution in Medicine, a guy named uh, Professor Zach Kahani. And I use that professor because I think it's important to note that, like, this dude is as credentialed as they come. You know, he's the chair yeah. of the department at Harvard, you know, and he got early access to GPT-4 around the same time frame that I did. He started taking it on, I don't know, to, to say he took it on rounds is maybe a little bit of, you know, uh, dramatization, but he basically did a similar thing to me, like just went hard. Oh my God, this technology seems like it could be transformative. Let me try to explore it as much as I possibly can. Now he's got this book out. But some of his kind of bottom line things are GPT-4 is clinically superhuman. He uses the, that's a direct quote, clinically superhuman. Um, he also yeah. says it will be, it will soon be considered substandard to receive medical advice that is not backed or, you know, where the, where the human doctor is not complemented by a GPT-4 like system. Uh, you know, clinical trials, back office, like insurance type stuff. Clinical trials is a, is a great one because it's a mess today, right? You you have like all these clinical trials going on. They have all these kind of, you know, ideal patient profiles that they define. And then, you know, there's kind of this information gets kind of shared somehow. It's, you know, structured, I'm sure, on some level. But like from the perspective of an individual practitioner, there's no way to like keep track of all that. So you've got this very sort of, haphazard matching that goes on between, you know, patients who really need, you know, something there, you know, typically if you're looking for a clinical trial spot, you have a big problem that is not addressed. 
and then the trials themselves. And, you know, that, that is just extremely inefficient. So you, they're now getting, you know, GPT-4 is now getting to the point where it can do that work. It can just grind, you know, here's a patient profile, here's a clinical trial profile. Does this seem like a likely match? Um, and we're doing task automation like that at Athena too, you know, very similar structure here, you know, that one of the biggest value drivers that we can, we think we can like level up pretty quickly is the quality of the client and the assistant match. The, mm. you know, the pool is pretty big, right? It's a, it's, it's a scaling company. So you may have, you know, in any given month, whatever, a hundred clients that are coming on and there's, you know, maybe 200 assistants in the kind of available matching pool. These are folks that have been, you know, screened and they, they screen aggressively and then hire and then, you know, some basic training. And then it's like, okay, now you, we need to match you with a client. Well, if you've got a hundred clients and you've got 200 XPs, you've got, you know, a little quick math would say you've got 20,000 bits of comparative analysis that you could perform, but the team just can't do that, right? So in practice, historically, it has not been the case that every client and every possible XP have been assessed for a possible match. Just like it's not been the case that every patient in need of, you know, a lifeline and every clinical trial have been assessed for a match. But, you know, GPT-4 doesn't sleep and it's, you know, can be parallelized. So now we can do that at Athena where we can literally just execute every single one of those. And then, you know, at the end of the end of the process, you know, there's kind of, you know, more, more core techniques that we teach, of course, chain of thought, like, you know, think step by step, you know, explain your reasoning in detail before giving a final answer. And we just banned, as of now, we just banned these, um, these possible matches according to a rubric that we've defined, which is, you know, a thousand words in and of itself. Um, but basically say, you're going to give this a, a one to five score, which I actually shouldn't even say that. I, what we actually do is like, poor, you know, below average, average, good, excellent, or whatever. Because um, the more semantic you can make your labels, the better relative to like one to five in general. Um, anyway, mm -hmm. that's details. But then, you know, at the end of the process, you've got, all right, who's all, who's excellent for this client? Let's take a look at that. We've now immediately narrowed the pool. You know, we can look at those and we can send off a few excellent matches and we can be confident. We can also do things that like, it's just explaining why the match, you know, in the, in the process mm. as it has existed, you know, there's times of the essence, whatever people don't have time to write for every single match, why we thought this was a good match, but GPT-4 will happily, you know, bang that out. And it's usually pretty good. So clinical trial, you know, is a, is a very analogous problem structurally. You have to have a pretty damn smart AI to be able to do that. And we only recently have them. Um, but, you know, even just the efficiency of those clinical trial matches is going to be transformative. And then think about all the bullshit that happens with billing and insurance. And, you know, today we have doctor's offices or practice groups or, you know, hospitals or whatever employ people or whole teams to interface with the insurance company. Oh, yeah. The insurance company has whole teams, you know, back to interface with them. I think those inter those are going to be like bot to bot <laughs> interactions before we know it. And, you know exactly how that dynamic plays out, I think is, is hard to guess. Um, but certainly gonna, the cost is going to drop a lot. Surplus. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's like, everyone always shares a chart of around like medical, <clears throat> everything is declining with regards to cost. Like a TV costs, like whatever one tenth it used to cost and healthcare costs more. And you're like, what the heck? It doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah, 
I think the downside perhaps is where do all those jobs go if they are replaced by bots? The upside is it's super expensive for, for people to get affordable health care. Not only in the United States, they might not be able to get the health care in other countries, uh, it, you know, in third world countries or wherever. So there's some definitely positive humanities. What about climate change, though? That's that to me is like one thing I'm super passionate about. Yeah, I think a little bit harder in that at the current moment, and this is something I was pretty obsessed with in my GPT-4 red teaming, it kind of became the key question for me, was is does this thing show brilliance beyond, you know, let's say at or even above the level of human expert? And, you know, there's obviously a lot of different domains you could try to assess that in. My general finding across the board was it at best seems to kind of touch human expert level, but it never really seems to exceed it. And one of the things that it doesn't seem to do yet is generate high quality novel hypotheses for, you know, future, you know, for downstream scientific inquiry. It can, so I would divide things into like things where there is a standard, you know, in medicine, there is a standard yep. of care in, you know, in the law, there is a, uh, a standard of professional responsibility and what those are is pretty well established and like what the resources are, how you sort of consult, you know, the existing information and make decisions is, you know, if not always put into practice as, you know, as it's written on paper, it is at least written on paper. And that allows the AI to like learn that, dig into that. There's a lot of data there. So I think you can expect, you know, already and certainly in the near term, like pretty high fidelity standard of care type interactions with an AI doctor. But on the hypothesis generation side, that's not really written down, right? We don't have a way to codify, this is how you generate an insightful, unobvious hypothesis that actually has some sort of elevated chance of being validated by experiment. That's kind of the, the genius moment, you know, that like yeah. the, the human scientists can do. And AI That's the difference that it feels yet. like of operating within a system of rules versus being creative, right? Like generating new ideas, which we haven't seen yet. Yeah. So I've pushed True, on really. that pretty Maybe. hard and I have not been able to demonstrate. And as far as I can tell, you know, from reading other people's attempts and whatnot, you see the kind of like sparks of AGI, but I would say is still sparks mm -hmm. and you're not really seeing the sort that, that kind of core thing of like, good hypothesis generation. I don't see that happening. So on the climate change question, you know, what you'd really want from a, from a dream AGI would like be like it. a great solution. <laughs> yeah. Like here's a, here's a technology solution. Boom. But we're not seeing AI invent new stuff like that yet. What I would say though, still, even if, you know, even if there's no further breakthroughs, the, I think the, one of the worst takes on AI right now is that the energy costs are super high or it's going to, you know, create tons of carbon or whatever. I've done some analysis on this as well. And it's like, if you can save one cross town trip, you can use all the AI you want, you know, in like a given period of time, because it costs a lot I more like that to framing. drive That's your cool. Tesla to the doctor's office, you know, by orders of magnitude than it does to consult the AI. Like the inference is cheap. Uh, and it does, just, I mean, it uses energy. So, you know, we're going to have data centers. We're going to have to charge our phones, like for sure. But the amount of energy that your phone uses is not that much. Like the actual 
this is something that GPT-4 told me back in the red teaming because I was getting interested in this. And so I asked it, like, how much energy does... Well, I was actually trying to buy a solar panel because I wanted to have some little backup in case of my power... I had a, we had a power outage, and I was like, I don't necessarily want, like, a huge generator, but I at least want to be able to charge my phone. So what kind of retail solar panel should I get so that I can at least charge my phone if we have, like, a couple-day, you know, power outage? So I had this conversation with GPT-4, and asked it, like, well, how much power does my phone actually have? You know, what what does it store? And it does not store much. Like, a typical phone battery, this is all per GPT-4, but I've, I've verified it. Um, you know, now you're getting up to, like, 15, 20, 25 watt hours of energy. And you're, you know, like a typical phone charger used to be a 5 watt phone charger. Now they've upped those a little bit, you know, as the batteries have gotten a little bit bigger. Um, so you maybe now have 10, 15, you know, watt chargers. But that compares to like a traditional light bulb, you know, 40, 60 watts, even an efficient light bulb is like, you know, 5, 10 watts. So your whole day's worth of phone energy is, and that includes, you know, making the screen light up, is basically one hour, maybe a couple hours of like a modern, efficient light bulb. And so wow. now we're seeing also the development where kind of not the biggest and best models, but like your sort of llama tier, you know, pretty good. Um, although, you know, a step below like the very best models for sure. Um, but nevertheless, like incredibly powerful stuff that was, you know, was would have been state of the art, you know, not that long ago and would have been totally mind blowing, you know, not that long ago can now run on an edge device. So I'm, I've been really trying to figure out in a data center how much electricity Very exactly cool. is used. And I, I, I can't quite pin that down yet. But what is clear is like, if you can run a pretty damn good model on your phone in roughly real time, then you are, you've, bound, you've put a pretty low upper bound on how much electricity it takes to do that. And so, you know, again, you can just basically use all you want. And if you save like any trip, you're coming out ahead on emissions. So I think that will be a driver uh, in the short term. On that note, uh, I know we've kept you for longer than intended, Nathan. Epic yeah, all good. Looking for, yeah, looking forward to perhaps having some more, um, you know, enjoy, enjoy the long weekend here. No, Thank you very not much, with your AI homies. Don't, don't even. <laughs> yeah, we're going to no we'll mostly be hanging yeah. out with other humans. Uh, Maybe we'll consult uh, a little bit as needed, but yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers. Yeah. Have a good. See ya.